Good morning. A couple of weeks ago, Amy Imboden was here on stage while we sang, and she pointed out a line from the song Everlasting God. It says, you do not faint, you won't grow weary. If you know the song, you know the line. If you were here, you probably know what I'm talking about. And Amy was pointing out, she was just reflecting on how amazing that is, that God doesn't faint or grow weary because everything else does. Scientists even speculate that the sun itself will one day burn out. I don't know why I'm laughing about that. That's horrifying. But on a, on a much smaller and less threatening scale, right, we all do our best to fight off the fainting, wearying, fading effects of corruption in our own lives. We put food in the refrigerator. We roll up our windows when it's about to rain. We brush our teeth and wear deodorant most of the time. Right? We iron our clothes. We put Neosporin on our cuts before we put a Band-Aid on. There are 101 small and large things that we do every single day to stop, to fight off spoiling, the spoiling of good things. But how often do you think of sin's power to spoil? Sure, you probably recognize that sin makes you guilty, but have you considered and do you often consider the way that sin corrupts and distorts you? It's like leaving a gallon of milk out in the hot summer sun. It's going to sour. It can't help but sour. Sin is like that. And our problem is that we, we fail to understand sin in that way. We don't realize or remember that we have been saved from this corruption, that we are protected, delivered against its spoiling power. And so we return to it again and again because it's just a rule that's not supposed to be broken. You do this, right? It's, it's not just me. I'm not standing up here the only person who returns to my sin again and again. You go back to it and every time it's bitter and leaves a bitter, terrible taste in my mouth. And, and yet we all go back to it. So what should we do? How do we fight off? How do we fight against this corruption? You already know where I'm headed because of what Ben was saying a moment ago. So in a moment, we're going to turn to 2 Peter for an answer from God's word to this corruption. But before we do that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you haven't left us blind, feeling around in the dark, trying to figure out where we should go, that you have revealed yourself to us and you have revealed how we ought to live and what reality is. Give us eyes to see that and ears to hear it and hearts and hands and feet and mouths that will live that out and walk it out. Lord, I pray that this morning as we spend time in your word, that it would refine us that it wouldn't be just for the sake of becoming smarter, um, but, be, but for becoming more like you and uh, better understanding who we are, who you are, who you've made us to be, and how the gospel points us and teaches us in all of those things. Thank you for this church. Thank you for um, just the ways that you've provided for us. And as we head into, hopefully, a new and better chapter that you will continue to be gracious to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at Second Peter, which is a letter written by the Apostle Peter. And 
as usual, I'm going to encourage you to have a Bible. I'm going to have slides up, but I'm going to encourage you to have a Bible in front of you that you can look at. And if you're looking at a phone, that's helpful too. But I think the Bible will be more helpful because if, as I'm going around, you can just see more on the printed page. That's an aside. Right. So we're looking at Second Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. So he saw the miracles. He heard the teachings. He was there for the resurrection and the ascension. All these things you can read about more in the Gospels, and we can read about some in the book of Acts, like Joshua mentioned earlier this morning. But we're going to focus on 2 Peter 1, and we're going to look at 1 through 15. And naturally, we're going to begin with verse 1, and then we're going to jump to the final verses, 13 through 15. And the reason I want to do this is because the first verse is going to tell us who Peter is writing to, and then verses 13 through 15 are going to tell us why he's writing. And when we Figure that out. When we see that, it's going to help us understand what he's writing. So verse 1 says this. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So who is Peter writing to? He's writing to fellow Christians. Okay, easy enough. We're going to jump down to verse 13. It says, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter knows death is coming soon. He realizes that his time is short. And that these may be some of his final words. And if you remember, we dealt with something very similar for the Apostle Paul as we looked at 2 Timothy over the past several weeks. But this morning, what we're going to find in this letter are the very things that Peter, again, eyewitness to Jesus, the very things that Peter is making every effort to instill in his fellow Christians. These are the things that he wants them to remember when he is no longer around to remind them. Which raises the obvious question. So what are these things? So let's look at verse 2 down through verse 11. It says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence... By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, And godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever lacks these things, these qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter wants his fellow Christians to remember these qualities that are going to help them live, help us live effective and fruitful lives as Christians. And we're going to spend time, as you would expect, looking at these things. 
But those qualities are not the heart of this passage. This list of seven attributes is not the heart of Peter's message for us. Right? The heart of Peter's message is, surprise, it's the gospel. <laughs> the heart of the message is the gospel. It is the good news that you and I, fellow Christians, have been saved. We have been rescued, delivered by Jesus Christ. Now, before we get to what Peter thinks we should do, we really need to understand why he thinks we should do it. So Christians will frequently call to mind, and you've probably heard this if you spent time in a church, but they'll call to mind the image of a courtroom to explain what salvation is like, that we stand guilty as charged before God, transgressors of his perfect law, but because of the work of Christ, we are instead pronounced innocent, righteous. It's, it's much, much better than not guilty, right? It's not not guilty, it's righteous. Our sins are forgiven. Peter preached this message in the very first Christian sermon ever delivered, which ironically was read from by Joshua. I'm looking around. Everything is different. And Joshua is also in a very different spot this morning. He, he mentioned this and read from this in Acts 2. And as Peter is concluding that sermon, he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. So you are saved, not through any work of your own, but by Jesus Christ. We are united to him in faith, and what belongs to him becomes ours. His death becomes my death, his life becomes my life, his righteousness becomes my righteousness. And so the guilt of sin is gone. Later in Acts 3, Peter once again says something to this effect. He says, your sins may be blotted out. So in Christ, your sins are as good as erased from the record. You are not guilty. But is this how Peter speaks of salvation here in 2 Peter? This is why it's helpful to have the Bible in front of you. No, not exactly. If Peter wanted us to think of salvation and sin in terms of guilt and judgment and forgiveness, he could have spoken of our condemnation and our guilt and our pardon. Like he did elsewhere, like he does in Acts, but he didn't. So how does Peter refer to our salvation in Christ? Well, if you look in verse four, it says, he says rather that we have escaped from corruption. In verse nine, Peter says, we have been cleansed from our former sins. Both refer to going from a condition of unfitness to fitness, from affliction to health. Right? This is not simply a matter of ideas or principles. Escaping from corruption isn't a vivid way, a more vivid way of talking about the removal of guilt. It means what it says. It means that we have escaped from the deterioration and rotting and spoiling that sin creates. Being cleansed from your sins is not just a more vivid way of talking about the removal of your guilt. It means what it says, that this disgusting thing that has been spoiling you has been washed away. Peter's emphasis is not here on the scene of the heavenly courtroom, but on life, on the restoration of life, which, unsurprisingly, is how this section opens up in verse 3. It tells us that his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life. Now, it's not to say forgiveness 
plays no part. Forgiveness is not pushed to the side. It is very much still central to the gospel because without the forgiveness of sin, it doesn't matter how clean I become. It doesn't matter how much life I'm restored to. If I am guilty of my sin, then I still deserve punishment. And the punishment of my sin is death. So the gospel does not change. It does not stop being a message of the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus. But if we listen to Peter, we will see that there is more to this good news than we typically think. We've already seen how Peter describes salvation in terms of escaping corruption and being cleansed from sin. But he also tells us, like we noticed a couple moments ago in verse 3, that everything pertaining to life and godliness is given, is granted to us. Verse 4 tells us that we are made partakers in the divine nature. So Jesus doesn't just take away the corruption and the filth and the guilt, but he replaces it with something better. It is a gift. It's grace. And this, to me, seems like more good news. So bearing that in mind, this list of traits, these qualities that Peter wants us to remember, they are to be received as grace, as gifts, as good news. They are the outworking of the divine nature. They are the redeeming, redemptive response to sin's disintegration. This is what is meant in verse 8 when Peter talks about these qualities keeping you from being ineffective or unfruitful. It's really easy to hear those words and immediately think of works. Here's where I come in. Here's what I need to do rather than grace and gift. But the effectiveness and the fruitfulness are not works that we are performing for Jesus to earn our way. Even these things, even our effectiveness, even our fruitfulness can be and ought to be understood in light of our escape from corruption. So the book of Jude... Jude is a very short book, very easy to miss. Although if you want to say you read a book of the Bible, it's a pretty easy one to go to. It's right before Revelation. It's only one chapter. But Jude and Second Peter are very, very, very similar. Lots of, to the point of using the same words, talking about the same people by name, same ideas. And so there's a lot of overlap. And when people study these two, they use them to understand each other. And at one point in the book of Jude... It refers to teachers as fruitless trees in late autumn. Fruitless trees in late autumn, right? It's late autumn. It's harvest time. These trees should have fruit on them. They should be ready to be harvested, but they're not. The point isn't that these trees needed to work harder, that they weren't trying hard enough or doing the right thing. The point is that these trees were corrupt. They were dead. There was something wrong with them, right? When we become fruitful, it's not just a matter of working harder. It's about being restored. An ineffective clock does not need to try harder to be an effective clock. It needs to be fixed. So assuming a similar idea to this fruitlessness is in Peter's mind, when we read 2 Peter, then this fruitlessness, this effectiveness, is not a matter of us trying harder. It's a matter of being restored, saved, escaped from corruption, and into life. That's going to produce fruit. That's going to be effective. That's going to work. And when we read it this way and understand it this way, it's grace. It's gospel. It's a gift. This is why Peter so desperately wants his readers to remember these qualities. 
It's not a matter of me or us or anybody giving what we owe to God as if there is anything in all of creation that would ever be enough. It's a matter of accepting the gracious gift that he is giving to us, which is, after all, new life. We have to remember that our God, the Lord, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Because when we forget what God is like, when we forget that who God has shown us to be in Jesus Christ, that he came and lived and suffered and died and served, he made himself low, not so we could wash his feet, so that he could wash ours, and that he would then die for us. When we forget that this is what God is like, we can't help but read our Bibles incorrectly. We can't help but turn verse 8 here into a marker on our Christian performance review rather than a gift of restoration out of sin's corruption. And the same thing's going to happen when we read verses 10 and 11. If we aren't always holding in our minds that God is gracious. We are constantly going to be on the lookout for our place to contribute. What are my lines? Where do, I, where do I fit in? How do I make this thing my own? And if that's what we are looking for, verses 10 and 11, really this whole section, if that's what we're looking for, will have us all kinds of confused. Because verse 10 tells us to confirm your salvation. And if, if we're reading this as if Peter's telling us we have to add to this, we're in trouble. If we're reading this like Peter's telling us to create a Netflix account, okay? That probably sounds really silly, but it'll make sense hopefully here in a second, right? When you create a Netflix account or really anything like this, you give them your email, and then what do you get back? You get a confirmation email. And only after you click that link and say, yes, this is me, I'm not a robot, do you get access to Netflix. When we think about confirming our salvation in that way, all of a sudden... I'm not saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus anymore. Because I don't get the benefits until I prove by confirming to him through the confirmation link he sends me of obedience and fruitfulness. It's not until I prove and confirm that that I am now receiving his benefits. And that's not how this works. That is not the gospel. That is not what Peter is telling us when he says, confirm your salvation. Right? Peter is advocating for confirmation, for firmness, for security, steadfastness, stability in our salvation. And it's not because our salvation is wobbly or shaky. It's because we are. He wants us to be confirmed, steadfast, secure, so that we won't, look at the end of verse 10, so that we won't fall, stumble, trip. And what, fall, what happens when you fall or stumble or trip? You hurt yourself. See, diligently seeking stability, this confirmation that Peter is talking about, isn't how we earn our salvation. It's how we enjoy it. Because it's a gift to be enjoyed. Now, should any of us expect to never fall? No. No, the expectation is not that we never stumble because it's not expected that we can ever possess all of these traits perfectly Right now. But if this is the new life that God graciously has in store for me, that God graciously has in store for you, to be conformed to the image of his son, sanctified, made like him, holy and righteous, if that is what he has in store, and he's holding it out for us right now, saying, you can begin enjoying this here. Not fully, not completely, not perfectly, but you can have this here, I would be a fool 
to not accept it. I would be crazy to wait. This is what Peter understands and wants fellow Christians to remember. In Christ you are forgiven, and in Christ you have been cleansed. In 2 Peter 2.22, Peter compares returning to the corruption of sin, returning to sin, to a dog that returns to its own vomit. Or a pig that after washing herself returns to wallow in the mud. It's obviously counterproductive. It's foolish. It's ignorant. It's self-destructive. For this very reason, because of the destructive nature of sin, the foolishness, the ignorance of sin, make every effort to supplement your faith. That's how we get to that point. Make every effort to supplement your faith. And faith is the starting point. Without faith, according to Hebrews 11, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, none of these other qualities matter. Faithless knowledge, faithless self-control, faithless love. These things are just window dressing on a condemned house. On a house that's abandoned, forsaken, run down, that's dangerous for anybody to be inside and is destined for destruction. So we must begin with faith and not just faith in faith, but belief in Christ. And then we supplement our faith, not to complete it, but to complement it. See, an unfurnished house is still a house, but a furnished house is a much better house. An unsupplemented faith is still faith. And you will still be saved because it's not your faith that saves you. It is Jesus Christ who saves you. But an unsupplemented faith, an unfurnished faith, is not as good as a furnished one. So what do we supplement our faith with? Well, as you look at uh, verse 5 through 7, we are to make every effort to furnish our faith with virtue. Perhaps your Bible says goodness. The idea here however, is not to furnish your faith with nice behavior, or at least not exactly. Because the word that gets translated means something closer to fulfilling your purpose. So a hammer is a good or virtuous hammer, not because it's nice and it's kind and friendly, but because it does the job of a hammer. A, A person who is going to be virtuous does the job of a person. And for us, that means that as partakers of the divine nature, to be virtuous means to live as if we are partakers of the divine nature. Because that is what we are. And as we do that, as we pursue that, as we pursue that excellence or goodness or virtue, we're not only escaping from corruption, we've not only been forgiven of our sins, but we are replacing it with something infinitely better. So then to virtue, we add knowledge. If we're going to live virtuously, if we're going to live in harmony of our design, then it's going to be a good idea to know what the divine nature is like and not walk around ignorantly. Do we remember that God is compassionate and gracious? Do we remember that God is loving? Do we remember that God is holy and just? Do we remember that God has commanded us to love our neighbors and pray for our enemies? And not that they would suffer and perish. Do we remember, do we look at the cross and remember what our God is like? To this knowledge, we had self-control. It's no good. It's no good at all if I know what God is like. If I can't control myself enough to act like it. It's no good if I know God is kind 
if I can't bite my tongue because I'm still under sin's corruption. Now, this isn't saying that I'm not saved, but it is saying that sin is still having corrupting effects in my life. It's no good if I know God is generous, if I can't get my heart to give. I'm still living in sin's corruption. Again, this is not that I'm not saved, but this is something worse than I could have. So we have to apply this self-control to our knowledge as we pursue virtue, excellence, goodness. So to self-control, we add steadfastness, which is the ability to control or the ability to keep doing the same thing. Right? If I can control myself, but it only lasts a moment, well, that's only going to do me a little bit of good. That goodness is going to last a moment and then it's gone. And then I'm wandering back into the sin and to sin and its corruption. And so we have to. Add steadfastness, the ability to stand firm under the weight of challenge and not and be resolved to persist. So we've got faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness. And it's precisely at this point that we have to be sure to add godliness. But why? And now what we've been doing this whole time, right? Hasn't all of this been an effort at becoming more like God? So then why would Peter say to add godliness? It, it would make more sense maybe at the beginning, maybe at the end as a summary, but kind of smacked here in the middle. It, it's, it's a little strange. Well, frankly, I, I don't think that's really what Peter is saying. I know that's a, a, a wild thing maybe to hear me say, but in my opinion, the word godliness that we read in English is not a terribly helpful translation. Uh, several weeks ago, as a small group, we were working through this passage, and uh, our good friend and brother Alex, who is from Austria, looks at the German translation, and he reads, well, it's not God-fear, it, I'm not even going to try and whatever it was, but it was essentially God-fear. The German translation was God-fear, where we would read godliness. What Peter is describing or prescribing to us is not more godly behavior. It's not saying to your godly behavior, add more godly behavior. He's saying to these things, you need to add God fear, proper fear, proper respect, proper worship that God deserves. It's right at this point when you start to feel pretty good about yourselves. I'm, I'm saved. I got a little bit of knowledge. I'm doing this thing. I've got self-control. I'm steadfast. I'm feeling a little puffed up. And he says, fear God. Remember, this is about God. This is not about yourself. This is not your grand self-improvement project. This is a life lived in worship to God. And when we remember these things, when we remember that, it's going to keep us humble. It's going to keep us honest, and it's going to motivate us to holiness. This God-fear will produce godliness in us. So then to godliness, we add brotherly affection, brotherly love. Love for those who are like us. Love for those to whom we're connected. And specifically, love for our fellow Christians. This attitude of godliness, living before the face of God, realizing that my life is not my own, it's going to produce in us, it ought to produce in us, a love for our brothers and sisters because we're constantly reminded that God himself loves our brothers and sisters. That we are siblings United together by the love of Christ. And as such, we can't help but love one another. If we understand that, we cannot help but love each other. So then lastly, to this brotherly affection, brotherly love, we add love. Love for all. 
unconditional love, love that reflects the gracious love of God. And importantly, love that has been formed by these other qualities. Possessing all of these qualities, we are made effective and fruitful. We are no longer like a tree without fruit at harvest, but a tree bearing fruit similar to Psalm 1, a tree bearing fruit in its season. We are brought out of decay and corruption, ultimately leading to death. We've been restored to life. Peter isn't calling Christians to earn their way, but to come who they but to become who they are in and by the grace of God. And now we've come full circle because the love that rescues us is also what we are rescued into. The love that forgives is also the love that rehabilitates. And its aim in rehabilitation is its own reflection. This is why Peter has set his mind on committing these things to our memories. Peter understands that the gospel is eternal in the truest sense. Yes, it speaks to our everlasting future and one day when we stand before God in judgment. It absolutely speaks to that, and we have great hope in that, in all of life's trials. But Christ is also saying something to us now. In Christ, you are not under future judgment, but also in Christ, you can begin right now to escape from the corruption, the rot, the ruin of sin that will be once and for all eradicated in the new heavens and new earth. You can begin to taste and experience that now. There's a, an old hymn I love called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Although my favorite version of it is filled with like electric keyboards and electric guitars, so it's not exactly what you might have in mind. But there is a fountain filled with blood. And the first words, or the words of the first verse are as follows. It says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Praise God that he removes the guilt and the stains. Second Peter 3.14 says this. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and he's referring to above where he said the new heavens and new earth. So you are waiting for these, the new heavens and new earth. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish or stain and at peace. This isn't to earn your salvation. This isn't even to prove that you are saved. But it is for your good. Praise God. <laughs> That he removes the guilt and the stains. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for, thank you for your goodness, God. Help us to see your love um, in all of these things. Things that can, be, that can seem challenging, that can seem even overbearing, impossible even. And to realize that you don't give us these kinds of things to crush us, to weigh us down, even though they can. God, but you give the, us these things to show us what goodness is, to show us what we could be and what we ought to be. And in the gospel, you've given us the good news 
that we don't need to be crushed by the weight of these things, that it isn't a matter of my performance. You've shown us that you do love us, you do care for us, you do want what is best for us. And while that doesn't always turn out how we might hope or imagine, help us to trust in you, that you are infinitely bigger, wiser, smarter, more powerful than we ever would dare hope to be. Help us to take these truths to heart, that the gospel isn't just a declaration of our forgiveness, even though it is absolutely that. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts that the gospel is a message of deliverance. It is a message of rescue, that we do not have to live in the corruption of sin any longer. We do not have to be enslaved to it. And help us with that future hope to know that even as we do suffer, even as we do face sin, our own sin, the sins of others, the injustices that we ourselves commit and that others commit around us, that you are the just judge and that everything is in your hands and that knowing that we can be sure and we can be steadfast knowing that you are secure. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.